captivity from another. And just through the sheer repetition and familiarity of separating one from another, it gains such a momentum to it that it makes for a divided world. And so what we find is that we live in a world which appears and seems to contain within it so much separation. And this shows itself in all the expressions and forms of groups, in so-called nationalities, in classes, in social structure, in age, etc., etc., etc. And so what we keep finding with ourselves is that each time you and I are speaking about something or someone or a group, if we're unaware, we isolate that particular group or that particular person or ourselves from all else. And this gains its own reality, which you and I have given to it, to him, to her, to them, to ourselves. And the way that one of the ways of the many ways that this shows and manif manifests itself, this separating and dividing through communication in which we're not looking at it deeply enough, is through such concepts as peace, as peacemaking. And one of the frequent difficulties which we, which we have and which was explored by a number of people in some of the groups today was the so-called inner peace work and outer peace work and the seeming difference between the two. And one of the things which seems to have, we might say, evolved in recent years is that there has, and perhaps that's one of the benefits of contemporary uh, therapy, the benefits of uh, Eastern philosophy, of a number of spiritual, religious groups, alternative lifestyles and so forth, an increasing awareness of the influence that the inner life has with regard to the outer, as well as the outer to the inner. And what that has come to mean is that more people involved in peace work are beginning to realize and appreciate that the inner and the outer are not separate from each other. The work for peace is the work for peace. And in uh, looking at this, uh, both with regard to so-called outer situations and our connection and our relationship to them, that takes countless ways and means to work with. And I was rather reminded of this, as perhaps some of you were, with the, the talk this morning by uh, Bob, by Bob Thurman. And one of the points which he was bringing up in this work for peace, and he used the monastic concept, the monastic uh, symbol, and it seems to me what's necessary 
is in outer peace work is to establish places, oneself, one's, one's home, small groups, as a movement which in some degree or other expresses peace, that our own home becomes an area of peace, that our place becomes a, a, a light, a, an ashram, if you will. And in that, we explore within the immediacy of our living world. And that expression is just as valid and as meaningful and appropriate as countless other expressions. And sometimes that shows itself you know, in a very ordinary, simple gesture of how do we respond to somebody who knocks on our front door. And I'm rather reminded therein of a rather wonderful little statement of a, a 1930s uh, writer in Britain called G.K. Uh, Chesterton, a man of enormous proportions, mentally and physically, um, <laughs> who spoke of what's significant in life as tremendous trifles. And it's within these small gestures, when there is this awareness and alertness to life, that these tremendous trifles have the capacity in life to touch and touch deeply. And we can never anticipate this. So in our, let us say, outer awareness and all that is implied with that, our own openness and capacity to listen is such that what needs to touch us can touch us. And a number of people here, very uh, uh, in the questioning and the inner questioning which accompanies that, find the difficulty of saying and feeling, I need to do something. There's some feeling, there's some concern about life, about the planet. I need to do something, but I don't know what it is I need to do. And I would say, generally speaking, the feeling of helplessness and powerlessness is the feature of a so-called single mind. That is the character of a single mind in the face of looking outwardly and all that expressed there, how can oneself not feel powerless? Because there is the isolation there of the individual from all else, and how else could we experience but just feeling powerless? And therefore, when we are feeling that, what we are expressing within ourselves at a particular time is another way of saying, I feel isolated. I feel disconnected from. I feel separate from. And so the heart's wish is to activate one's concern. One can't do it by oneself. No one ever has done it by oneself. Nobody. Because we are all in it together. And therefore... I would say the response to helplessness is connectedness. And connectedness is taking the step to make contact with like-minded people, as we are doing today. This gives the mind its authority.
This gives the mind its, if you say, so we say, power. Knowing that there are others who are together and one feels the togetherness. It can't do it on its own. And one of the beautiful things which is happening in the peace movement, the outer peace movement, is we're not creating heroes anymore. We're not creating Gandhis and Martin Luther Kings and such. We're not elevating somebody who's going to run the show and run the peace movement. It's beautifully decentralized. It's decentralized among women and men. How many of us can name a, ma a so-called major figure in the peace movement? I can't. And what that means for us is that there isn't anybody to turn to an, an individual and to tell us what to do. Because our collective being together brings each one of us with the responsibility of being together on the planet. I regard this as a tremendous step forward, that we don't have these figureheads and that we can look to each other and respond to each other. And if we're not making a division so much between the outer and the inner, then I wonder whether this... Oh, no. <laughs> I would like to call it spontaneous, but it's hard with something mechanical. Um, <laughs> might be a signal for me to shut up. I hadn't thought of that. Anyway. That sometimes with regard to the... If we make the division between the outer and the inner, and all that's seemingly implied in that, what does happen for a person is conflict and is confusion and is feeling, well, how can I really do anything in the world when I am so like this in myself? And that experience, which is common enough, actually inhibits one from responding to life. It's another way of saying, I'm not ready, I'm not good enough. And then one is disempowering oneself, one is undermining oneself, and one has done it because we've made a division. The work for peace is the work for peace. Sometimes that may be expressed outwardly in, in contributions towards others, in the relief of suffering, in giving care to friends and family and so forth. Sometimes it may be expressed in working at with oneself and in oneself and all that's implied in that. It's still the work for peace. And sometimes, even with our anger and, and in our difficulty, sometimes there are decisions which have to be made which are in spite of anger, I would say. And perhaps we must be wary with ourselves and not in ourselves and not trying to be perfect 
not idealizing and saying, well, how can I speak for peace or work for peace when I am like this? And particularly with anger, which is a difficult feeling and a difficult emotion to work with. If I could just give um, an, uh, an example, personal one. Some years ago, some 14 years ago, when uh, I got a reminder from the uh, talk today, um, when I was uh, a monk in Thailand, and I lived in southern Thailand in the province called um, um, Nakhon Sri Damarat. Um, it's rather an acronym. Nakhon Sri Damarat literally means, it's a province, and the main town is that, uh, called that as well, literally means the city of the kings of Dharma. This isn't literally me. It's the most violent place in the whole of Thailand. And <laughs> you could call it like Philadelphia, you know, you know. So anyway, sorry about that. <laughs> so there's a lot of terrorism and um, violence uh, in the province. And we were called out, that is, uh, the monks and the abbot and uh, some nuns, about a dozen of us, because of some uh, um, murders and terrorism in this village in the uh, rural hills of the province. And the terrorists there are actively engaged in um, terrorism, and still, it still continues, against both uh, army and local police stations, in part because of injustice, in part because of the treatment of the people, in, in part due to the manner of the, the army. And many situations have occurred, very tragic, where some young men labelled as terrorists were being taken up into helicopters and then pushed out of the helicopter. So we arrived in this village in um, one uh, evening to give this uh, talk. And rather sadly, I was, the monks and myself, we were met at the railway station by the army and the police. And I groaned inside because it immediately gave the appearance that we were supporting and and sorry, and siding with the army and police. And as we walked single file through the village to the Dharma Hall, the army walked along either side of us. And the villagers just stood there and just watched. And when we got into the hall, the, they were there, that is the army, and there were some coffins there, and barely anybody in the village except the family of the deceased. And it appeared that we were supporting one side. And I was quite concerned about it. And then during this evening, which was a bit of a last straw at that moment, a plate was handed to me and I didn't see who passed it to me. And on the plate, there were two bullets. 
And I had no idea what did these bullets mean. What, what, and I looked round and I asked, well, who, who got these bullets? Who put, put this there? And there was just blank faces and nobody responded. And I said to the uh, uh, Ajahn Damodaro, who was the, the teacher and abbot, I want to speak. And I felt inside and quite angry. Angry at, the, at what happened when we arrived, angry at being guided through the streets, angry at, at, the, at soldiers being in the Dharma Hall, and, and the whole, whole situation. And I told the army to get out of the Dharma Hall. And there's quite some restlessness and uh, agitation and tension. <laughs> and just spoke, as one wishes to do, and just to speak about justice, about non-violence, and about effective ways and means as much as we can on this planet to work with non-violence. And, and I s s say and relate this story simply because if one just ties in to feeling angry and feeling aggressive and all the unsatisfactoriness truly which can outflow from it, it can inhibit one's the necessity to say what one is seeing and feeling. Yet one still has, I feel, the responsibility, of course, to keep looking and keep working, working on oneself. The two are not separate from each other in any way. Just about, I must tell you a story, just about that time, in this, in this uh, mo mo monastery, where, what China translates as the monastery at the end of the rice paddy. One of the rules that monks have, incidentally, is uh, one isn't allowed to run. You know, it's kind of considered unkosher. And, uh, <laughs> and in, the, in the Dharma Hall of the temple, there was... Uh, a bomb, an empty bomb, which had uh, from a B-52. This is, of course, the Vietnam War days at this time. And monks would ring bell four o'clock every morning to uh, start the day. And then we had um, another um, bell for ringing for an emergency: flood, fire, the accident, or whatever. And it was I was on uh, what should we say uh, call duty. Um, for a few months period at that time to actually ring the bell, four o'clock, the, the, this empty bomb, to get the monks up. I remember one of them saying, I wish you wouldn't ring the bell so loud in the morning, it keeps waking me up. But anyway, <laughs> and one, one morning at four o'clock, I was just about ringing the bell, and then I, then I heard, I just saw a young guy with what was um, a small, rather expensive Buddha image under his arm. And I thought, oh, look at this. What's this? Um, and I thought, what's, what's this fellow doing with the Buddha image under his arm? 
And next minute, he runs out of the, 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 the sala, the, da, the Dharma hall, and there are a hundred huts there, of a hundred monks in the, uh, this large uh, field area. And he's running across with our Buddha image. So I ran across and rang the emergency bell. And it was one of the most amazing sights I ever saw. The monks rushed out to the door, saw this young guy with the Buddha image under his arm, and then all chased off after him. <laughs> and there was such... The old monks were running, and the young monks, and I was all galloping, we want our Buddha image back. <laughs> it was probably the biggest event in Buddhism since the Buddha sat under the tree. <laughs> Anyway, the young fellow got away with the, uh, the, the, Buddha, the Buddha image. And then eventually it came back, he had flogged it off in the village to someone and then it end, ended up back. And just how in all of these situations, when there is for any of us some kind of outer situation which is threatening, the threat of loss, the threat of change, the threat of something happening. What happens inside? What goes on inside in the way this, that this phenomenal world has its impact upon us? And I think one of the things very important to, uh, for us as human beings that the very soft and deep and tender place within human beings, and I think there's something in that when we are in touch with life, there's some, a certain kind of gentleness which human beings can manifest and express. But this vulnerability, this deep place inside, is very easily subjected to hurt, yet to love. To pain and difficulty yet to extraordinary compassion. And what we do with our life very, very easily and understandably is to set certain defences, and I think defences are you know, sometimes necessary, but we make these defences to protect ourselves from situations so that we don't allow ourselves to feel. But what happens, of course, very easily for us in the way that the world relates to us is that sometimes there is an impact upon oneself. Inwardly, the impact is so strong, it creates a feeling of hurt, deep hurt. And in different ways, you and I have experienced deep hurt in our life. And one of the defences that we use to handle this hurt is to re react back. This is called anger. And we all experience this tremendous, let us say, call it a tremendous undertaking that we have in life. That when the world, or in the form of somebody, or in the form of a system, or in 
the form of a society or whatever the form is, has its impact on us and we feel hurt, in those times, in those moments, we are truly, truly challenged. And that's where friendship and contact and communication and opening up and, and, and sharing becomes extraordinarily significant. Because out of that sharing and that communication, the message is going out in different ways. Stay with your deep inner feeling. Stay in touch with that. Have faith in, in that, that soft place, that vulnerable place inside. Be, be there with that. In spite of what's occurring. Because when we can't, this aggression anger, rage, easily occurs. Let me give you a common illustration, an example of this. We've become in recent years in our society increasingly aware of child abuse. And as people love children who have all of us having being children, we see the destruction and the devastation which occurs in child abuse. During the years, both as a prison visitor, counsellor and work on retreats, I have spoken with a number of people, generally uh, men in this area, who have acknowledged and have said that they have engaged in child abuse or sexual abuse in some form or other. And all the pain and the terror and the horror of what that means. And one thing which I have noticed, with such human beings, is a common denominator without exception of all those, I'm not saying it's true all the cases, but all those who have actually spoken to me openly, clearly and directly. And the common denominator is all of those, in this case, uh, men, all of those men were abused as children, were deeply hurt in childhood. In some form or other were traumatized in the early formative years, without exception. And it seems to me that awareness and working with situations asks of us, and of course many people at this weekend, considering of the Passover, and considering uh, the time of Jesus, it asks of us this enormous challenge, as was said two and a half thousand years ago, and is being said today to us, judge not lest ye be judged. And spiritual awareness and practice and working, working with this world is for us to be acutely aware of being judgmental. Because when we are judgmental, 
distinct from making judgments. When we are judgmental, that reactive attitude towards another human being or society or whatever, it's simply because we can't see further than what shows itself. We've grasped hold of the initial sense data, the initial impact, and in that moment, we, in our lacking of depth, we can't see deeply. And our seeing deeply, inwardly, is an expression and a contribution to an empathy with other human beings who can't see deeply into themselves. Violence doesn't happen by itself. It happens because there are causal factors for it to happen. And the movement, the whole peace movement in this regard is enormously challenged of how to deal with difficult situations, how to deal with areas of work and responsibility and what that means. Last year, at a peace camp outside of Molesworth, where some cruise missiles will be um, deployed sometime uh, in the near future, peace camp was set up at this USAF base. There's a huge, as always, this very high wired fence there, and a number of people were camped there, and I've um, been there to give. Uh, peace workshops and things. And last year, the peace camp, mixed peace camp, were faced with a terrible problem, a crisis. And what occurred was that in the peace camp, a woman was raped. This brought about in, an enormous problem for all the people living in that camp which didn't seem to get resolved. In part due to the views of some people who said this man who is still there who denied the incident and used that and the woman who was in awful pain because of the situation, the peace camp had to decide what to do with this situation. Let us say this man was accused, let us say like that, more precise. Whether to go to the police and what would that do? If he was charged to throw him in prison, what would that do? If he wasn't one didn't go to the police and let him go, would that mean that somebody, another woman later on down the line would be subjected to, to the same abuse? 
Should he be allowed to stay in the peace camp? Should he be encouraged to, to get in touch with what's happening inside of himself, yet only hear, yet all the peace camp members, all they were hearing was denial, 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 denial. And it split the peace camp. Hour upon hour upon hour, day after day, the peace camp couldn't come to a resolution about what the appropriate action was. And there was an un ongoing fear that if it reached the media, the media would highlight it in the way that the media is, highlights and discriminates actively against peace activists. And I don't have the answer, and I don't suppose any of us have the answer, but certainly it requires inqu inquiry, it requires real communication, an understanding of the process, having to make decisions, etc., etc., etc. And in countless situations in our, in our life and in our world, that's in the field of responsibility that peace must coexist, not as an ideology, not just as a state of mind for oneself or others, but peace with justice. And so we're now looking both outwardly and are looking inwardly. There is, shall we say, peace which we regard as the opposite to conflict, the opposite to war. And we are told that we live in a time of peace because of the absence of. And yet at many levels we see the distortion, the fragmentation and the pain within our world and society. Aspect of our awareness and our seeing surely is to see ways and means that we consolidate the judgmental mind, whether it's directed to the person that one calls I or other. To see what ways that we abstract, we take an image and we build up on the image and we create the problem we're struggling with. And so an important question for a peace worker is, what is the threat? What is the threat? Who is the enemy? Where is the blame being directed? How is that making a division? And therefore we must be acutely sensitive. Every time we speak, we communicate, we write, whatever, the way that the f accusing finger has the tendency to come out and pinpoint.
And I would say, if I may, that that's a fiction. We have made this world. We have made these bombs. We have made this conflict. We have made this love and this joy and this thirst for social justice. That the idea that there is an other is a social mythology. The idea that there is others who are not who are innocent and who are not innocent is part of the divisiveness. And what happens is when we attack surely we have learnt this lesson in life when we attack another blame another the response of that person inevitably is to defend themselves is to justify their position and the us and them syndrome creates the conflict that's why the world is at war and so our very communications, our very language and our very being has to find another way of seeing which doesn't carry this us and them judgment image and all the violence which emerges. We're all in this together. We've all made this together. And that applies between two people in a relationship, between a family, between a person and neighbours, between a social group, between a society, between a so-called nation, or whatever. And so when we explore and... and Explore ways together of seeing afresh and seeing anew and seeing through this divisiveness which is so destructive. Then love comes effortlessly. Deep friendship for life, in life, with life comes uninvited. It doesn't have to try to make love or find love or create love in or develop love, there's an abundance of it. Comes out of receptivity, out of open-heartedness. And with it comes that quiet authority, let us say, that what one sees, one sees deeply and responds to what one sees because there's no choice. If you see suffering in life, the heart must respond if you see. If you know about it, it doesn't make a scrap of difference. It's as though we need to appeal to our deepermost inner being in order to meet the times that we live in. And thus, the inner and the outer truly are inseparable. There's no difference except with the language.
May all beings see into light. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings live with love. So let's have two or three minute quiet period together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.